I totally forgot to add us. <laughs> That's how we do things around here. <laughs> Thank you for watching Rise to Liberty. We are back for another episode today with author Mark Gober. And uh, he was nice enough to uh, send me this amazing book, An End to Upside Down Liberty, Turning Traditional Political Thinking on Its Head to Break Free from Enslavement. How you doing today, Mark? I'm great, Jacob. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Honestly, it was probably one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. Uh, books are one of my favorite things ever. Somebody saying, hey, I want to send you a book. Yes, please. Please do. <laughs> awesome. Thank you for reading it. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. I, I definitely recommend everyone picking up a copy, um, especially because there's a, a lot of... Um, a lot of people just coming out of the matrix, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah. And that is one thing that I liked about your book is, you know, for myself, I knew a lot of this, but not everyone does. And it's a good idea to kind of go back to basics for some of us that have thought this way for a while. And it's great, a great way to introduce other people. Yeah. Well, I'm new to it myself. So uh, that's been the pattern with my books is that I learn something and want to create a bridge for other people who want to make the transition and uh, basically put all the information out there for someone who's starting from scratch and build the way, build the logic up. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's on, honestly one of the reasons I started my, my show was not only to entertain, you know, I myself started reading uh, Ron Paul when I was in high school oh. <laughs> and that, that was quite a while ago, you know, but I'm, I personally am an anomaly that I am different than most people. <laughs> yeah. And I also can't speak mush mouth. Um, but nonetheless, even back then I needed an on-ramp, you know, and I want to entertain others, but also I want to inform others. And so I, I definitely enjoy your book, but even though I have thought this way for a while, there was also things in there for me as well. So it's not only an on-ramp. Um, so I definitely appreciated that. Um, so so I can shut up for a minute. Do you want to give everyone kind of a synopsis of exactly what your book is and kind of where it came from? Sure. Well, the book makes the case against the state, basically, which many other people have done. But I tried to summarize the great thinkers of of like at the Mises Institute, Murray Rothbard, people like that. So it's it's a hybrid of uh, anarcho-capitalist thinking, Austrian economics. And what I, what I tried to incorporate was something I didn't see quite as much of in the political and economic literature, which is the metaphysics that makes the moral case, I think, even stronger. So the non-aggression principle is central to my book and to this liberty uh, movement. The idea that we should not initiate aggression against anyone's body or the things that they own. And aggression can be physical violence, fraud, theft, coercion, anything like that. And if someone does that to you or your property, you have a right to self-defense. It's a very simple principle. And if you actually apply that principle to all aspects of society, the state doesn't make sense in the current form. It argues for privatization. So that's a lot of what I talk about in the book. Um, but the reason the non-aggression principle is so meaningful beyond just making sense to most of us is that... Uh, if looking at the nature of reality, which is what I've done in my prior books is like, why do we exist? Who are we? What's the nature of consciousness? It seems as though the non-aggression principle is essentially built into the fabric of reality itself. So it gets into some 
kind of out there topics of, you know, who life after death, consciousness beyond the body, psychic phenomena, um, which is what I've explored a lot of my past work. And when you dive into it, you realize, wow, this notion of the golden rule that we should treat other people well because we're all interconnected, that doesn't, that's not just something that sounds nice. There's science that backs it up. And wow, if there's science that backs it up, then the way we run our world doesn't make sense from a metaphysical standpoint. And that's what the book tries to do is to make the political, economic, and also the metaphysical case. Yeah, I, I think it definitely does that. Um, what I think is interesting is most people don't talk about the, the metaphysical side of it. Yeah. Um, it seems as though the idea of uh, atheism has spread quite a bit more, at least something I've, I've seen. Um, I know some other people who know a lot more than me agree with that sentiment. Um, especially amongst my generation, you know, I'm right several years into the millennium or, uh, millennials. And there is a lot of people that just don't have any or no interest at all in creating any sort of a, uh, relationship with any sort of a higher power. Um, or just outside of themselves. Um, not to say that it can't happen. I know there's always outliers. Um, but it seems like a major portion of my generation. And I personally blame the state uh, on creating that. Um, I mean, the, the founding fathers were men of God. I don't necessarily think that that's the right path for everyone. But you can... Everyone can leave it up uh, to themselves. However, when as a society we move away from that, we we tend to see uh, a power vacuum, and then the state comes and steps in. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, my I actually started off that way. I thought life was random and meaningless, and that anything spiritual or religious was just superstition that we'd advanced past. And I became more and more that way after graduating from college. Then I went into investment banking. And you can imagine what that world is like. It's very much, <laughs> it's not a spiritual place. Um, and yeah. then I, I went to Silicon Valley advising tech companies. And I was still very much in this like nihilistic, mm. atheistic worldview. And my whole journey into writing books and speaking publicly started in 2016 when I was listening to podcasts. And I learned about science that challenged my nihilistic worldview. And I started to realize, wow, there's a lot of science that's out there that suggests that human beings are much more than we're told and it's being suppressed. And that's what I started off doing. My first book in into upside down thinking goes into all of that. That was 2018. Um, so I agree with you, Jacob, that there's something that is definitely suppressing this information because it's very empowering to the individual. And it also makes the individual, if, if you believe in, in, in something transcendent that we're a part of, then it makes people with that belief system less likely to put other people in a godlike view to like worship people or institutions if you actually have this higher um, authority if you want to call it that you believe in so it would make sense that authority figures would want to suppress this information and there is a lot of that we i, I talk about this in uh, all my books really but on wikipedia the scientists that study a lot of these phenomena around consciousness anomalies uh, they'll be called pseudoscientists there's lots of censorship a lot of the, the things we've seen in the last two plus years around the pandemic, um, we see that in the, in the realm of consciousness anomalies. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting that, uh, you kind of came from this position of, uh, 
I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but thinking that everything was fairly random. Yeah. Um, and then going into the fields that you did, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so what, at, at what point was it, was it a, uh, like a one moment thing that just switched for you or was it gradual? It was gradual. So 2016, I heard one podcast initially. It was like the first domino. And then I listened to a bunch more, then started to read books. And then I realized, wait a second, I, if I want to be intellectually honest, I have to incorporate all this new data. And it's like data from the US government, psychic spying programs where there's declassified documents. The University of Virginia has had a lab for decades on something that sounds crazy, but children who have memories that's beyond this life of a past life. So things like that, that sound totally wild, but really credible people studying it. Um, and it, it led me to then just start to question everything. And I became much more open when I, when, when the pandemic era came around in 2020, I was not a political person at all. I didn't care about politics because before um, even I got involved in consciousness stuff, I was so focused on whatever I was doing in business and whatever was, was immediately in front of me. So policy didn't matter unless it affected like the technology stuff that I was working on. And then 2020 came around and I was seeing a lot of censorship again. And I'm like, well, I've seen this before. I actually saw it professionally in a different context than I saw it with regard to consciousness and spiritual science. And then we're seeing the same thing with doctors being censored if they question the mainstream narrative. So I was very familiar with this pattern. And then I started to look deeper and I saw people out there who were saying very sensible things like Ron Paul and others who I was not familiar with at all. And that led me to start looking at Liberty and Mises and Rothbard. Uh, and that's led me to where I am now. So one thing I, I really liked that you had done in your book was a uh, cognitive dissidence. I, I thought that was a really clever, really clever addition to that. Um, because that's one thing I notice as I talk to people, um, I, I try to talk to as many people about this as I can. Uh, you know, I'm slight autistic, so it works out really well for me. It's easy for me, not for others. Um, there is a lot of pushback because it's the idea that they could never do that. That wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. And it's just so hardwired that they will, they, as in some people will get even angry. And, uh, you know, obviously we've seen video after video of people getting violent, uh, for people sticking up for Liberty. Yeah. Yeah. And cognitive dissonance, this psychological, barrier is a big part of it because what I learned first with consciousness science, there's a, a cognitive dissonance there too. When you tell people, wow, there's science suggesting that life is actually inherently spiritual, they push back. And that was something I pushed back on. And then you start questioning the fundamental nature of government to say, could we run a society theoretically without this institution that's inherently coercive? And people get upset with that. So I started off with cognitive dissonance in this book because I knew I was going to create so much cognitive dissonance in terms of the metaphysics, the politics, and the economics. So I'm hope I was hoping to soften it for people. Uh, but in my own experience, and I wonder if you've experienced this too, Jacob, is that you have to be willing to let your mind go in these areas, to even open up to it. And not everyone is. Some people have a wall and they don't want to shift their worldview in any capacity. They want to believe what they learned in school and what the media tells them, their trusted sources, and they don't want to question. That step of even asking the question, like when you see a headline, to say, hmm, why are they why are they saying that? Is there a reason they're pushing this one thing? Is it the objective truth? Uh, that's radical for some people to do. Yeah, that's, that's actually something I come into contact with quite often. Um, in fact, the 
the hardest part of being involved in the liberty movement or just even just speaking of liberty itself is most people have to realize in the movement that it's not the popular idea. Um, it hasn't been, uh, even at the formation of the United States, it wasn't the popular idea, but that's not the point behind the liberty movement. It's never going to be the popular idea. That's not what the masses are going to accept as a good idea or whatever justification they have for not wanting it, yeah. but it doesn't have to be that way as far as, uh, like we don't need the masses to see liberty in our lifetime. That's, that's not what the intended um, audience is of the masses because they will always reject it. Uh, the, it. It goes against mainstream narrative, culture, everything, and liberty, freedom. It's always been counterculture, always. Yeah. can't be mainstream and counterculture at the same time. Yeah. And especially these days, I mean, it's it's amazing to see that the notion of liberty is considered radical. That has surprised me um, because maybe I'm newer to this. I didn't I didn't understand to a degree I did, but to another degree, I didn't understand how polarizing these ideas are that some people do not want to engage in a rational conversation about ideas. And um, hopefully at some point that will change, even if people don't necessarily agree with everything, that there can be more open discourse between the various sides. Because what I'm noticing is lots of different echo chambers and people not even realizing that certain news exists or facts or ideas. I mean, I had never heard of Rothbard or Austrian economics. And actually in undergrad, I started off in the economics department at Princeton. And I, I switched out of it because I thought it was too theoretical. I didn't like all the graphs. I did not like economics, even though I went into business, which to me was more practical. I ended up switching my major to psychology so I could study behavioral economics. But I had never heard of uh, Mises or anything like that. So when I learned about this stuff within the last few years, like, wow, this is this actually makes sense. Um, but how is it being so hidden and tucked yeah. away? And why is it so controversial to, to say that capitalism could actually be a good thing? Yeah, the, the, the Keynesians and uh, I, I guess the modern monetary theorists, you know, they can't have this because they can't really argue. I mean, of course, there's the criticisms of, you know, the Austrian school and some of them are valid, uh, but nothing's going to be perfect. So nobody who's a who's an Austrian ever claims that it's perfect, but it's better than these systems that people tend to uh, tend to promote. Yes. And that right there might be the biggest challenge with the liberty perspective, because it's arguing for something that's imperfect, meaning that there are inherent losses that will come about by if we were ever to theoretically switch to something more liberty focused. And I do remember this from college studying psychology is that people are very sensitive to losses relative to the status quo. They're actually more sensitive to losses than they are to gains. Losses feel worse than gains feel good. And Daniel Kahneman uh, and Amos Traversky won the Nobel Prize for this. Prospect theory is the name of it. Yeah. And this is a major psychological hurdle because people see, oh wow, if, if we didn't have the government, we had government does these things, we couldn't. It would never work. And then they shut down. They won't even consider the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. It's. I find it interesting. So I personally took the plunge of an anarcho-capitalist, a, a volunteerist. Um, definitely, volunteerism is a lot prettier package to put on it. Um, I think it's interesting, though, that that is the logical conclusion to where a lot of these freedom ideas uh, lead to. Uh, I wasn't always a volunteerist, and it was it was a process. I got there. Um, 
it's just interesting to me that we have agreed upon like you can go talk to almost anyone that you know taxes are bad like they don't want to pay them all of these other things like all of these corrupt things happen well if we go to that extreme and we go to like the ussr or north korea everyone realizes that that's not the way that we should run and it's like but a little bit of it's okay okay well let's let's get there everyone you talk to now still says what we have now is too much yeah what we do is too much so let's just roll it back just a little bit more because it's got to go back that direction otherwise you're just going to end up a slave yeah but it's i'm amazed at how few people actually think that through because in america we've been really spoiled where even though from an ANCAP perspective, there are things we don't like, it's a pretty good place relative to many other places in the world. My opinion still the best country. Yeah. I mean, but from a, a logical and moral perspective, there are issues. And I think that's what the liberty movement is trying to get at. Um, but it's easy to just rest on our laurels and say, look, life's pretty good. Life's short. I don't want to think about these things. But I agree with you that the, the logical con conclusion of having legalized coercion given human nature, it's not going to be good in the end. And there are plenty of examples of this throughout history. And if you talk to other people who live under much more oppressive regimes, they would be more inclined to agree with the liberty movement. And in America, we just we've had things so good that it's uh, less common. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. So I, I want to talk just a little bit about, um, you know, the, the naysayers, the, um, the contradictions that people bring up, uh, yeah. So my, my, one of my favorite ones is the warlord fallacy. It's like, well, without the government, then everyone's just going to be a bunch of warlords and we're just going to have criminals running everywhere. And it's like, well, first of all, tell me how that's different than what we have now. <laughs> you know, we have major world wars happening. Uh, we have roving gangs all over the place. So the government you're clinging to had didn't stop that. Right. It didn't stop it, but we're accustomed to it. And therefore, we're not as sensitized. Whereas if you bring up something new, then all of a sudden these potential losses, quote unquote, enter the picture. And the the, argue, the counter argument you just made is a great one because it can be used basically to everything that goes that someone would say against the ANCAP liberty view, because whatever the argument is, is look, the state's already doing that. Or is it so good under the state? And people usually have asked those questions. Yeah. Yeah, it's. It's interesting as a, as an ANCAP, I always get, well, how would you do this? It's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm, I'm a podcaster. I'm, I'm not somebody who knows, uh, you know, how shipping lanes work in international waters. I can't explain that to you. And they're like, oh, well, you don't have an answer. So it's invalid. And I'm like, right. that, that doesn't work. Right. And their That's answer fine. is, their answer is government. Yeah. without saying how government's going to do it. But what is government? Government is a bunch of human beings, just like the private market is, except government has special privileges that a private company wouldn't have. And government gets paid no matter what through taxation. Whereas if you're a, a company trying to solve a problem and you do a bad job, you won't get paid and you might go out of business. Unless you're an airline or a pharmaceutical company. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm assuming no collusion or interaction with the government <laughs> that can bail out. But you're right. Yeah. But... That that's I in my personal opinion, that's my favorite part of any actual free market is the ability to fail. Um 
and there's there's been so many successful people all throughout American history who have been extremely successful and incredibly influential on like Americana that constantly failed after failure after failure, but they kept going. And without those failures, like if they were just propped up, then who knows? We probably wouldn't know their name. Right. It's, it's how we all improve individually and collectively. And this is also where I tie in some of the metaphysics, because based on what I've studied from that, is that this notion that we want to improve and evolve is, is also built into the fabric of reality. And it just makes sense that we try things and sometimes we succeed, sometimes we fail and we grow through the failures. So it's not, I'm not advocating for like mass suffering through the liberty movement. That's, that's what someone might counter argue, but uh, there would be growth if we were allowed to actually try to do things on our own. And what we do see in the free market is tremendous progress and technological advances that we all benefit from because people had to come up with innovative solutions. And also a counter to what you often hear, this idea of like, well, you don't know the answer, therefore it's invalid. If you think of lots of innovative companies throughout the world, like every tech company, their business models are things that probably no one could have foreseen 50 years ago in the way they do it. And it's because there was an incentive for them to solve a problem and they were able to do it in, in innovative ways that could not have been predicted beforehand. So let me ask you this. Why, why not this centrally planned economy? Why doesn't that work? Well, it's, um, it's based on an assumption that the central planner knows enough to centrally plan properly. And why is that problematic? Because an economy is made of human beings, and human beings are very complicated. So from the Austrian perspective, uh, the idea is that human beings have subjective preferences, and those preferences can change in an unpredictable manner. So let's say, let's talk about food preferences. Uh, let's say you like hamburgers one day, but then the next day you like hot dogs more than hamburgers. Just one example. But multiply that by every preference within a human being for all sorts of things within an economy, and then multiply that by every individual within the marketplace. How could a central planner know what's best given how complicated human beings are? How could a complicated artificial intelligence machine do it? It can't. So um, Hayek, the Nobel Prize winning economist, he called this the pretense of knowledge, this idea that we could even know that we that it would be possible to know what's best. And therefore, it's, it's really a fallacy of central planning, the idea that people, even if they have a really good intention, that they could possibly enact policies that optimize for all of the subjective preferences of everyone in the economy. Yeah, I would like to say that that's pretty well wrapped up in the uh, economic calculation problem to where every uh, central, centrally planned economy pretty much ends up with an abundance of things they don't need and a shortage of things they do need. It's because they have no way to measure what is needed and they just produce and tell people. Right. Whereas in a free market, people's preferences even all of that out. So if people want a lot more of something, then there's then there will be a need to produce that. And when they don't want as much of it, then there's there'll be less production. So really the consumer's desire for things, the consumer's demand is going to drive the marketplace ultimately, and then supply meets it. To have a central planner come in from the outside to tweak the levers is automatically going to benefit some people and hurt others. And when you give that power to people, it's big trouble because then you could just, based on your personal interests, fund the politicians who are pulling the levers. Yeah. So we, we shouldn't give the government full control. But another counter argument I hear a lot is, well, you just want the corporations to take over them because that's every 
everybody that would, you know, just come in and just control everything. And what, what would you say to somebody like that? Yeah. Well, the problem is in the current environment, it's, it's not just corporations, it's corporations in the context of a centrally planned economy with the government that has the power to give preferential treatment to the corporations. And it has monopolistic authority over a certain jurisdiction. So we've already started off with a problem. We've got a monopoly <laughs> determining all this stuff. So I think the argument is anything relative to that is going to be better. And the, you remove that, that sanctioned monopoly, the state, and you let companies interact in a free market. And the idea is that consumers are going to dictate who thrives and who doesn't. And if a company does really well, that means by definition, assuming they're not criminals, if they're criminals, then it's a different story. But if they're an honest organization in society, um, then their profits reflect the value that they've brought. And if they're criminals under an ANCAP society, then people would be liable for self-defense to try to remedy that situation. So it's not perfect, but is it relatively better than the state? I would argue yes. I would I would have to agree. Um, we wouldn't have evil companies that continue to get away with things who get a slap on the wrist, uh, looking at you, Purdue Pharma, um, that just get a slap on the wrist for poisoning people, doing all these or all this environmental damage, and they still get to just be. And it's like, well, they're the only one. Um, a corporation is actually, you know, basically just a uh, favoritism from the government. It's a filing for taxes and certain privileges that you get as long as you agree to these certain things. So my argument has always been they wouldn't corporations as we know them would not exist without a state. That's a good point. They would just be companies that exist because they have revenue that they're generating from a certain yeah. source, but they don't have this protected status as a government sponsored organization, basically. That's not fully true, but you know what I mean? It's based yeah. on the government. And um, this is a really important point because when I do have conversations about this, people tend to mix government and politics and they don't even think to remove politics from the equation to have a fully free market because they think we are in a capitalist society, which we are relative to more socialist economies, but it's not a truly free market because we have a central planner and you don't have any way out of that. So it's like the first step when talking to someone is to decouple these things to say, no, no, no. Imagine there's no state because <laughs> they're, they're yeah. always want to say, well, there's the, there, you have corporations and then they conclude with governments and get bailouts. And we're saying, no, 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 we're removing that. And it's a free market with these companies. Yeah. So it's, it's up to all of us to decide, not, not a central planner who gets to play favorites because somebody donated to their campaign. Yes. And you're reminding me of one of my favorite quotes from PJ O'Rourke. He says, when buying and selling are controlled by legislation, the first things to be bought and sold are legislators. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly how uh, most pharmaceutical companies got out of having any, um, any liability for any of the opioid crisis. They just changed the law. They paid a, paid a small parking ticket and then, influenced the law and that was it yeah it, the term is cronyism that's mm -hmm. effectively what it is and people use the term crony capitalism um to say that capitalism is problematic but that assumes that capitalism is happening within the state it's really just cronyism because you're able to collude with the state and if you didn't have the state then you wouldn't have that ability yeah which is uh cronyism being a stepping stone on its way to fascism which is pretty much where I think we are now, uh, especially with the, the, the meshing of big tech and government, kind of how it sits now, especially with what's coming out about uh, censorship and everything. 
and how there was pretty much just orders being taken uh, down from the White House. Uh, that, that, that seems something like Mussolini would do. Right. But the, the way fascism as a term has been spun culturally is that it's considered to be like mean people who are at, who are running society, basically. <laughs> and economically, fascism means the merger of corporations and government. That's really what it is. When government's influencing what the companies are doing, you have this relationship, an interrelationship. We clearly have that right now. But if you can't call that fascism, that's like not <laughs> culturally allowed because the people are doing it for benevolent causes. If they say it's for yeah. compassion, out of compassion, then for some reason it's okay. Yeah, I'll I'll you know step on your neck with my jack boots, but it's because I care. <laughs> yeah, this distortion of compassion is a real. I mean, it's something I am appreciating more in the last few years because it's almost like, well, we can get away with this if we tell you it's for your own good or it's for the common good. Therefore, it's not being coercive. We're just trying to help you. And maybe some people believe that, but people who are smart and evil can use that to fool people. Yeah, and that's typically who are drawn to these uh, these positions. Um, I'll tell you right now, I'm personally running for office for a uh, a, a midterm, uh, running for the house here in my state. And boy, I see why people don't run. I see why people don't want to get involved. Why it's just easier for other people to do it. Having a system like that, if somebody is hell bent on creating harm in society and they have anything in between their ears they will go the political route uh, especially if they're sadistic in any way because that's exactly what this has uh, has shown me is that this system that the barrier to entry is just it's incredibly tedious boring and long and then on top of it you have to be able to influence people enough to even get in the position in the first place so that is going to attract a certain type of person um, who's able to just stay in there 40, 50 years. Yeah. In my book, I, I talk about the psychology of psychopaths, which is a, a known field in psychology, that there are people who literally don't have empathy. And it's hard for most of us to relate to that because most people are not psychopaths. But these people, the, the really good ones, are like chameleons. And they could, on the surface, seem to be benevolent or say the right things that you want to hear. But in the end, they just care about power. And the state is an organization that you would think would be a magnet for that type of personality. So it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in government is like that, but it is a magnet for some of them. So that's, that is a real problem as well. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Of course, there's good people. Once again, yeah. there's always outliers, X factors, all kinds of different things. But it is an environment where somebody with that type of mental disorder would be able to thrive and uh, be elevated very quickly. <laughs> yeah, because it's an institution that is legally allowed to control people. So if you had a psychopathic personality and you love control, you would gravitate toward government. And that psychology is just so foreign to most of us that it's like you have many people haven't thought that through. Yeah. So kind of want to pivot just a little bit. So we get people onto the idea that government's the problem um, to the market issues, all kinds of everything. Now, the big pushbacks I usually get there, which is a, a section you covered in your book, which I absolutely love. The old adage is typically more roads. <laughs> Who's going to control the roads? 
how how are we going to uh, have roads? Everyone will just be driving into houses and businesses, and it'll just be pure chaos. So yeah. w without the state, how are we going to have roads? So in the book, I include this chapter on privatization of all the government functions of, of eliminating the public sector effectively. And I have one mini section on roads because it does come up very often. And there's a, a book by Walter Block that goes into all of the stuff. So I, I took some snippets of what he's, you know, there are many great thinkers that I just tried to aggregate because I'm not, I'm new to all this. Uh, but the idea is that why, why can't roads be privately owned? It's just land that would be managed and there would be an incentive for road owners to do a good job because that would, it's, people would want to drive on those roads and businesses would therefore want to be on the other side of that road if you had a one that worked really well. And you'd want to have safe roads because if you had um, lots of accidents, for example, that might clog up the roads. And if your revenue as a road owner would happen to be based on the number of drivers, for example, then you wouldn't want to have clogged up roads. So you'd have an incentive to want to keep things well kept and safe. Um, and probably new technologies would even emerge where you wouldn't have to like pay a, a toll like every five seconds where it would be electronic when you pass through different owners. Um, then maybe it could be done electronically. Although now we're getting into the realm of entrepreneurs would probably come up with better solutions than we could think of here. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm not going to be getting into the field of uh, you know de developing technologies for people to drive on you know private roads. Yeah, <laughs> it's just not where my interest is. But that's not to say that nobody else is. Um, the one thing I I think is a great criticism of volunteerism is well let, let's break this down back up just a little bit so i have uh quite a few really intelligent people uh acquaintances friends um you know uh community partners and everything that um pretty much agree with minarchism it, just a tiny bit of government you know it has just a couple of things that it needs to do and it needs to stay that uh what is the argument against minarchism as it does sound fairly reasonable yeah I mean, it sounds good it assumes that limited government can stay limited and really we started off as a semi-minarchist society in america that was it was it, there were libertarian ideals if you look back at what they were saying and it has grown and grown and that has been the history of governments because even in a limited government form the structure is in place where there is essentially unilateral authority that's been granted that, well, really has not been consensually granted in an explicit manner. Whereas typically a service provider works with a customer through a contract in a minarchist society, that's not usually what they're talking about. They're not talking about that explicit relationship. So um, the idea that, that people often say is that a limited government sounds really good, but it's utopian. It could never stay limited forever. And another aspect of that is it's, it's sort of counterintuitive to say, well, Let's let the market do everything except these really, these other important functions, which are so important that we're going to let government do them. It doesn't really make sense if you believe in the free market, then the free market should be able to handle those functions. So there, there's typically, I would say, at least two things that, you know, I, I get the pushback against. Uh, one, one thing I do want to point out real quick, though, is like no matter what direction we're choosing minarchism uh communism uh just pure voluntary society no matter what the extreme ends of that 
is always called utopian, no matter what. Mm-hmm. All the sides. Now, I do agree that uh, you know communism is pure utopia because it has to be based on a lie for it to work, which it doesn't. So, I just thought that was kind of interesting. No matter what, we're always told, "Well, your idea is just utopian." And it's like, well, we've got to go somewhere. Yeah, no, that's um, that's a good point. But the the two pushbacks I I typically get is the court system or the legal system and military. So what what are some actual um, feasible ways that this could be taken care of? Because once again, that sounds pretty reasonable. Like, uh, well, we've got to have a court system to take care of uh, unruly people, and we've got to protect ourselves from other, uh, other cultures, other countries that are not going to uh, go along with the idea of a voluntary society. With regard to courts and, and laws, um, Hans Hermann Hoppe, the economist, he talks about a private law society. And that's basically the the ANCAP answer, which is that you'd in, in such a society without the state, theoretically, you'd have private property owners who would have rules over their property. And you might even have communities where people voluntarily agree, like this massive land area, we all have a certain stake in and we agree to certain things. And these are the rules you have to abide by. And part of those rules would include remedies in theory. So if someone breaks the rules, what happens? And their process would be in place. And therefore, anyone interacting with that private property owner would know what the rules are and know what the remedies are. So that could that could look very different, again, because you have an entrepreneurial society, effectively, different communities coming up with different rules and different systems. Uh, you could have private courts where there are literally companies that provide legal services that adjudicate arbitration, mediation, which those are things that we have in the current system too. And the ANCAP argument for the privatization of all this stuff and having it in a free market is that there would be an incentive for fairness. Because if you're not fair, then people are going to know that pretty quickly and they're not going to want to interact with that kind of adjudication. So let's say you're a landowner and your rules involve a company as your adjudicator that consistently gives really biased rulings, no one's going to want to interact with you, for example. So there would be an incentive in the marketplace to give rulings that are based on the, ru- the rules and not based on political leanings, which is what we have right now. This uh, this notion of the rule of law, uh, the Georgetown law professor John Hansis, and this is also in Michael Malice's Anarchist Handbook, he talks about the myth of the rule of law, the idea that it's just objective. You can read the words and therefore it's it's set in stone. Words are subjective and they have to be interpreted and therefore the rulings become political in the current system based on the judge's interpretations. And how do we remedy that? I mean, judges are appointed in the country, so it's problematic as is and a private system, it's not perfect, but with private property owners, they would have their own rules. Yeah, it it seems pretty reasonable to think that if we could create a system to hold people accountable, then that system could be captured, which is kind of the point. It's like, yes, it could be started with the best of intentions. The first person in contr- 100% in control of it is great, and it runs just like it should, or at least as it was proposed. But then what about the next person and the next and the next? What about somebody coming along? Can it withstand an attack from somebody wanting to take it over who has every intention of manipulating it for something nefarious. Right. So the idea is that the marketplace corrects for this sort of thing 
naturally through the, the desire to maximize profits, because if you don't do a good job, then you're out of business. So there's an incentive uh, beyond just wanting to do good that's going to bring to an equilibrium that the state can't do. And I would like to point that out is that's pretty much how humans work is based incentive based. It's even everything, every uh, relationship we have, every interaction we have with anybody is all incentive based. That's not to say that things can't be done without an incentive. However, that's how life works. I, I'm not sure how to break that down any further. It's nobody does something for nothing ever. Um, even if it's something virtuistic, uh, I give Christmas gifts because I want to see my family happy because I want to be happy because they're happy. You know, it's right. It's an incentive. Um, but that's in general how humans work. And so in a in a uh, economic way of thinking, why not pay people to act how they should? And then you'll build a good reputation because you're getting paid to do something and reputation, reputations follow you at everywhere. You get a bad reputation as being a liar, a cheat, people won't do business with you and you'll be shunned. Right. So it, it makes sense to me. Um, I just don't yeah. see it any other way. Yeah, I agree with you, but it, it, it requires one to let go of the desire to control, which I'm learning more and more that people want to, at least mentally, even if, if it's fake control, to think that there is something that can account for all of the problems rather than just people interacting in a marketplace, which I think is the logical, logically correct answer. It's logically superior. It's just hard psychologically to get there sometimes. Yeah, that was actually something I had a really hard time accepting during the government lockdowns was there were so many people that wanted to tell you what to do and be the moral police. And that was a hard thing for those people to let go of because they have they they've never had power in their in their life and now all of a sudden they have power and they can save humanity by yelling at you to to put on a face diaper like that that was really eye opening honestly yeah that there's this innate drive it seems in many people to want to control even if it means controlling others and maybe there's like a personality type of people that just literally don't want to do that at all they don't find anything positive from that. That's just like how I am is I want to leave people alone. Um, so there's a psychological component that people might have different wirings where they're more prone to want to control. And it's not necessarily out of malicious intent. In many cases, they're trying to do good, but they think that it's better, even though it might not actually be better. So it's like, they think they're being compassionate and they're actually not, and don't see that. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. I, I like to focus on myself, um, and things that I can change. I have a hard enough time controlling myself. I have no business controlling anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, not only do I not have the ability, it's not moral, it's not ethical. Um, but I will suggest things. You better believe that I am a loud mouth and I will suggest things and I will criticize, but it doesn't mean you have to listen to me. <laughs> yeah. No, I th you know? I, that, that's the way I look at it too, is that suggesting something 
or proposing an idea is very different than wanting to control someone's behavior. And that's what we've seen starkly in the last two plus years, that there are a lot of people who literally want to control. They think they know what risk you should be taking. And that to me, that's a scary concept. The idea that someone else can determine risk because with risk, there is uncertainty. And shouldn't you be allowed to determine the uncertainty on your terms and let someone else do that as well? That's just how I think about it. So let, let me ask you something I've been kind of pondering over for quite a while is the, the importance of shame in a society, a, a civilization. Uh, my personal opinion is overall, in general, we seem to be moving away from shame. Now, you know, just much as everything on the bell curve, um, you know, there's extremes to both sides. But there, there seems to be a, we're, since we're slipping away from shame, we're kind of slipping away from a lot of these things that could be policed in society uh, without the state uh, by not having that in society. What are your opinions? To me, the, the root issue is the lack of a sense of morality, that there is morality built into the universe. And this goes back to the metaphysical stuff, which I want to touch on briefly. Mm -hmm. um, I, I talk about this phenomenon in the book, in all my books. It's called near-death experience, which I didn't know about until I started researching. I had heard people say, oh, when you get close to dying, you see the light and your brain produces all kinds of chemicals. And there's a lot of research suggesting that, yeah, people see the light and weird stuff happens, but it's not just because of the brain, because they're seeing this stuff at a time when the brain is off which is a crazy idea. This is studied at the University of Virginia and elsewhere, millions of cases, but the best cases, they're called veridical out-of-body experiences, meaning the person's consciousness somehow is perceiving things outside the body and they're resuscitated. Like they have cardiac arrest, blood stops slowing the brain. These are clinically dead people. They should be able to have a complex thought or memory. And yet they come back in their body and they tell the doctor what happened from a vantage point outside their body. So the point here is that these experiences might actually be telling us something about the aspects of reality that our eyes don't see normally. And when the brain's out of the way, all of a sudden we're actually liberated in a sense, which is like the opposite of how society teaches us to look at this. And I mention this because one of the things that's often reported in these near-death experiences is people have a life review, which starts to sound pretty religious, but maybe there's like a, a basis in a lot of religions because people have been reporting this for a long time. People relive the events in their life through the eyes of the people that they impacted. And it's like time is compressed, some kind of Einstein's relativity or something. They relive the events in their life and they become the people that they impacted. They feel the good things and the bad things they did to them as that other person. And they even feel the indirect effects. They feel as a third party who was affected by your actions. So all this is to say, when people come back, their lives are changed. They become much less materialistic. They see morality as something that's very much transcendent. It's not something that a government is gonna tell us like this is our morality. No, morality is built into the nature of the universe. And actually, Dr. Bruce Grayson from the University of Virginia, who I quote in my book, in his new book called After, uh, um, he talks about his experiences with people who've come back from these near-death states. And they tell him that this is natural law, the idea of wanting to treat people well because we're somehow interconnected. That's what the people tell him over and over again. So if you think that there's a morality that's literally embedded in re reality, if people had that understanding, then we wouldn't be looking to to government to set the rules as much. And we would have a sense of objective morality much better where certain things you just, you can't do those things because you're, you're breaking natural law. And I think we lack that as society. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I've heard a lot of people argue for moral relativism 
which in my mind, I, I hear that and it's short circuits. It, that doesn't make sense to me. Uh, there is no uh, objective reality that, <laughs> so why does any of it exist in the first place? It, it has to be objective reality because it exists. It is, so it is. Right. I, I just but, don't see it any other way. It's it's a complex topic because like at the at the metaphysical level, I can sort of understand why people say that because like my worldview now is that we're all part of a transcendent consciousness. We're like whirlpools in a stream of water where water's like consciousness. So at some level there's subjectivity, but that's not the level at which we're operating. We're operating yeah. within the material world. And maybe the consciousness is underlying the world, but we're living in a material world. And we can't just say, well, everything is subjective. You determine your reality. That is counter to our everyday experience. So it's like at our everyday level of reality, it is objective. And maybe there is some truth to the subjectivity, but not in our everyday experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's something to be said, you know, yeah, make your own choices. There's such thing as free will as right. far as I'm concerned. Um, but there's always been, at least in me, and you know, this doesn't apply to psychopaths, sociopaths, that there is something in me that tells me or makes me feel bad when I do a bad thing, the conscience. Um, and it's just always interesting to me that no matter who you are, where you're born, your economic class, everything, we all have that. Every single one of us, unless you're for lack of a better term, born deficient. Um, not really sure exactly what else to call that as, as other than a deficiency, yeah. uh, which could be helped somehow. Um, I just see or not see physically uh, being a little metaphorical here that I can see the connection between all of us. And it's the strongest yet weakest thing because it, doesn't tie us together, but everyone experiences the exact same thing, um, which is interesting to me that uh, I could experience a bad feeling doing a bad thing. And so could somebody I'll never meet. So did somebody 100, 200 years ago. And that's that's uh, universal um, regardless. So I find it interesting. Yeah, the, the universality to me, that's the key. What is it in us? And, and the Scientific materialists would say, well, it's just built into our biology and there are reasons within evolution that would make us do that. And I, I think there's 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 credence to those ideas. There are aspects yep. of it that I buy, but there's also the metaphysical part of it too, that there might be something transcendent that our eyes aren't showing us. And there's a lot of science to suggest that this is true, which is also making us have a conscious conscience to have a sense of morality that we all feel without having to be told it by someone else. Yeah. Uh you know, I'm to the point, the, the first thing that kind of brought me closer to a more spiritual side is the opponents of everyone rejecting it, outwardly rejecting the whole idea that a God could exist or whatever. Um, the, the proponents of that way of thinking of just pure statism uh, pure nihilism, like I've seen them, I've known people like this and that is enough to, uh, bring me back from that because that's no way to live. Um, 
I see how terrible they are, how unhappy they are. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure why, other than the fact that they dove with both feet directly into a system where nothing matters. Yeah. And I can personally relate. I was there. That's how I thought about things. And I didn't tie it to politics because I didn't care, but I can understand where they are. Like if life is meaningless, there's no morality that's built into the universe, then it's it's hard to be really happy about things because it's like, well, you're going to die. That's the end. There's no actual meaning to life. And the way that I start people off with this, because I've had to do it so many times in the last few years, is I tie it back to this notion of the brain and consciousness, which I'll just run through quickly because it's like a... It's an effective way to open the door, I found. Even if it's like people don't understand it right away, they might be thinking about it for a while afterwards. So the brain is a physical structure made out of matter. Consciousness is something that we can't touch. It's our, it's our capacity to experience. It's our sense of awareness. So I was shocked to learn that science doesn't understand how this all works, that we all know that we have consciousness and we have a brain, but how could it be that the brain is producing something that's not physical? So Science Magazine actually called this the number two question remaining in all of science. So we, I like to start there with people, even the, the hard, most hardcore atheists. We don't understand our own consciousness, which is what we, we need a consciousness to, to even ask these questions and have conversations and examine the world. So until we understand that, um, it, being a, a hardcore atheist is not, it's not rock solid. And of course, where I land on this is that the brain is not what's producing consciousness, that our brain and our body actually almost receive it like an antenna or like a filtering mechanism. So our identity is our consciousness that's inhabiting the body and operating it. And the brain is involved in that process, but it's not actually producing it. And many people would disagree with me and some scientists would disagree, but they wouldn't be able to prove the counter either that the brain does produce consciousness. All they know is that the brain is closely related to consciousness because of neuroscience, but that doesn't prove that the brain produces it. Yeah, I, I don't know how we would be able to say that the brain produces it or doesn't produce it if we don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, how, how can we measure it until we figure out exactly what it is? You know, that, exactly. that's, a, that's a really good point. Um, you know, I, I, I don't even care, obviously, exactly what other people's opinions are. It seems to me that if you're only living for yourself completely uh without care i think is really why a lot of things happen the way that they do now as a as a culture and society the the idea that if there is something of outside of us bigger than us then we can live for something else and i don't think it has to be a god for everyone um but there has to be something in my opinion when you don't have that something it does get replaced by a bigger something, which is artificial, and that's the state. And that's why you see a lot of people uh, being a proponent of the central planned economy. Um, anybody, you know, read history so you understand it and so you don't have to relive it. And in any, um, like, Mao's cultural revolution, they had to destroy Christianity because your religion was going to be the state, period. Mm -hmm. And so there's something. I don't know what it is. I don't know who has the right answer, but I can tell you what it's not, and it's not government. <laughs> right, and what we see is that uh, government wants to take the place of God, whatever that, because for different people it means different things. 
Um, I tend to think of it as not like a separate entity, but just something that we're all a part of and that has a, a greater intelligence that we're tapping into. That's just the way I look at it. But these concepts are so, probably so much more complicated than the human mind can even grasp, which is what might draw some people away from it to say, well, I don't know exactly what it is. Therefore, I'm going to go just this route of it doesn't exist and it's all just in the brain. Um, but you're, you're making this really important point that there is a, a great incentive to want to remove the idea that, that, that we are more than our bodies, that we're part of something transcendent. Because if you wanted to control people, you'd want to remove that belief. Oh, yeah. Because then you remove hope and a chance. You know, there, there might be a chance for something. Um, and even if there wasn't, why would you live as if there isn't? Which I've always been curious about. Like, okay, uh, maybe God doesn't exist on whatever level um but why would i live as if he doesn't i should still live it as if he does only because uh the, i mean read the 10 commandments that's that's some pretty good basic rules for life yeah well i'll give you how i used to look at it because i was stubborn <laughs> and i and i see this in a lot of people and my stubbornness would say, would have said to you jacob why would i believe in something that science has disproven We've come so far in science and we, we have we can't explain everything, but we we know a lot. We can look back at the Big Bang. We know what's going on. Um, I'm not going to rationalize and just say there's a higher power just to make myself feel better when it's not the case. And that's that's the, the mentality that I'm personally trying to help people work through because yeah. I've had to work through it myself. But it's essential. Like this conversation we're having here at this point is really critical to thinking about the state and how we structure society because it's the lack of being able to get out of that stubbornness that can really lead to horrible things. It's like the first domino in a lot of bad stuff. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. It lands on science too, of, of all things. Um, it's really interesting. We, we've done some really terrible things um, against and for science. You know, uh, we locked people up for believing in gravity and, believing that the sun was the center of the universe. And, uh, you know, it's not even mentioned the last two years, three years, um, all kinds of terrible things. And then to have a belief as if that's just the way things work, let's, you know, let science or the state be our God as if, uh, politicians and scientists aren't just as easily bought off as each other. Right. And so, so I look at science as a tool. It can be used to falsify things. It's not actually used to prove things to be true. And we're seeing the opposite being used these days where it's like science proves this, you can't ask a question. And looking at the history of science would tell us that doesn't even make sense because it's always evolving. It's like we have a hypothesis and then we test the hypothesis and we revise the hypothesis. That's not how things have been done, where science has become like a form of religion. Some would call it scientism. And that's something I, I've, I've been trying to look at a lot, especially in my first two books on consciousness science and how they're like the stuff on near-death experiences at the University of Virginia. Princeton had a lab for almost 30 years run by the Dean of Engineering where they were doing psychic studies. The mind was impacting matter without touching it, and they ran statistical tests on this. Why is it that science as an institution would say, no, that doesn't fit into our paradigm, therefore we're not going to allow it? I mean, there are scientific journals that will literally, I know the scientists, so this is a real thing, they will reject papers that get into this alternative consciousness area just because of the subject matter. Not because the science was bad, but because it doesn't fit their paradigm and therefore they're going to get rid of it. 
So it's this like rigid mentality that we see with statism as well, where it's like a lack of intellectual humility. I mean, maybe that's the central issue with all this stuff. If you actually had humility, then you wouldn't want to centrally plan. You wouldn't want to say this is the science and the only answer because you'd say, well, this is our hypothesis. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's not. If we had that humility and applied it everywhere in society, then it would be much better. But that's just not how the human ego works, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's honestly one of the most important things to me is, of course, I will stand by my convictions. Um, I have gone through a lot, read a lot, studied a lot, you know, to get where I am for myself. And I will stand by that and defend it, you know, most ideas uh, regarding freedom uh, to the death. However, I understand that I don't know anything. Who am I, you know? Yeah. If somebody did present me with better information, that is refutable empirical data. Um, I have to accept it. And I, I think a lot of people don't want to admit that they're wrong. Hmm. And even if they know that they are, they would much rather have the public appearance of never being wrong. And I think that that, you know, the, the lack of humility and this weird social thing where people don't want to be wrong uh, because they want to look, be looked at as, uh, you know, a great person. And for some reason, being wrong and admitting it means that you're bad somehow, which, I mean, if, if a politician came out and said that they were wrong, a lot of people would appreciate that. So I don't understand the wrong being bad thing. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's the ego. It's, it's the way our society works and there's a lack of um, intellectual flexibility that I think we all need to have. I try to keep myself in check because when I write books and like have conversations like this, there's always a chance that I'm going to say something that I just, that we'll disagree with in the future. So I just have to always acknowledge like what I'm saying and what I believe to be true is hypothetical. It is provisional. It, it's, it's subject to change, but it's like, this is the, what I believe to be true with the highest probability at this moment. And therefore I'm going to live by that, but I'm willing to change. That's how I try to think about this. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm always willing to have a conversation with people. That's my thing. I'll hear people out. I mean, unless it's pure nonsense and you do hear that occasionally, but for the most part, 90% of all conversations, I'll, I'll gladly sit down and talk to anybody. If somebody has a better idea also, uh, if you come to me with an idea, like let's, let's have some real world things that you could possibly point to, you know, um, I get this a lot because of, you know, the freedom thing. It's like, well, you're not saying this right. Like the messaging's wrong or whatever. It's like, okay, how would you do it? Let's see you do it. Uh, how would you do it better? Because you're criticizing me. So obviously you have a better idea. Let's, let's see. Um, you realize very quickly, most people don't have a better idea. They just want to criticize. Um, I think a lot of that comes from ego as well. Yeah. It's, it's just like every segment of society we can trace back to this problem of human psychology. Um, but I think these, like these conversations, podcasts like yours help to open people's minds. And I've noticed in my own process, I'm much less stuck to beliefs because as I learn more, my old beliefs I'm realizing were wrong or there were assumptions that I had that I never challenged. And as I've been forced to challenge assumption after assumption, whether it's consciousness, whether it's statism, all these things, it makes me open to, to challenging other assumptions. So it's like 
I think we need to become more open-minded as society in summary. Yeah. yeah. So one thing I want to ask is, so since you were at that point of, you know, more nihilistic, nothing else matters and everything, uh, I guess this is a two-part question is exactly what do you think is more of the cause of that uh, big picture here? Um, the, the cause of that uh, collectively and what would also be something to set us on the path of a solution for, for that? The two things that come to mind are number one, education and number two, the media, because the message that's proliferated, even if it's not stated this way, like not everyone's going to come out and say, we live in a random meaningless universe. Your life doesn't matter beyond whatever you rationalize it to be. Like they don't say that, but the things that they're teaching imply that if you actually take the time to think about the implications. Um, so it's like, it's hammered into us in so many ways. And I've seen this now that I've explored it with consciousness. It's like deeply embedded within academia. Um, there was a, a neuroscientist, Mario Beauregard, who was talking about how he studies for lack of a better term, spiritual science, and was told at his institution in Canada by someone who runs the organization, she said, you will never study these phenomena as long as I am here. So there's this like institutional wow. pressure. Uh, I'm actually on the board of an organization called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and it was founded by an Apollo 14 astronaut, Edgar Mitchell, who had a transcendent experience himself and decided, he said, look, we need an independent organization to be able to study this stuff because within the mainstream, most of these organizations are, are cutting it off. So there's this, there's something going on in academia that's doing this, um, that, that definitely affected me because I didn't, if I think of myself as a kid, I probably asked a lot of questions, but then how did I get to the point of thinking, Oh, there's no meaning. Well, science was teaching me that. And that was through education. So that's number one. And then there's reinforcement through the media. There's this idea of like, Oh, um, uh, any, anything spiritual is sort of fanciful. Like it's, it's wacky out there, paranormal stuff. That term paranormal also is, is highly charged um, and does a lot of damage because it assumes that we know what normal is. It lacks humility. Like paranormal is only paranormal if you have a paradigm of what normal is. But like, what if that paradigm's wrong <laughs> of what normal is? And that's what yeah. I've been challenging. Like, because the minute you challenge the assumption of the brain, the brain producing consciousness and wait, Maybe the brain doesn't produce consciousness and consciousness exists independently and it's non-local like we see in quantum mechanics of non-local entanglement and things like that. Wait a second. Then psychic phenomena are possible if consciousness is outside of space and time. It's like all these things start to change in terms of like what's possible. Even if it's not definite, it could be true. Uh, but that's not what we're given in the media. We're given, it's like fantasy if you go in the paranormal realm or tinfoil hat, basically. Whereas, oh, it's just science, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, I'm just, you know, giving, he's Love. sort of the, one, of the, one of the faces yeah. of science of like, these things are true and they're really good at certain things, but anything outside of that is fantasy. So like yeah. to me, the education and media paradigms have to shift. Yeah, I would 100% agree. Um. I mean, there, there are massive attacks going on against mainstream media. Uh, you know, Hollywood's crumbling, you know, uh, trust in news media is at an all time low. Um, I would like to see a way bigger push for, uh, school choice. Uh, my personal opinion, abolish the department of education period. There, there's no, uh, no other solution, uh, in that bring it back to the parents, the students, 
free market will provide for that. Um, also, what business does a politician have in education? They're not an educator, they're a politician. Stay in politics, stay in your own lane. Um, but get out of everyone's kids' uh, brains and back pockets or whatever other terrible thing that we know about going on in schools. So I, I would like to see a way bigger push. Um, once again, not a perfect solution, but what we're doing is not working. And so why are we continuing to do it uh, regardless of education or media? Well, I mean, there are people in society, I guess, who think they're all knowing to some degree that know what, what it is that we should learn and know the information that we should have. We see this in the social media world where certain things are going to be censored because they know what's best for us to know. And it's that mentality that I think has to be broken in the school system. I, I like your idea a lot of like, why, why should it be that the politicians determine what's in the curriculum? Because really anything could be in a curriculum. There's lots of things to learn about the world. And we have to make choices because we have a finite amount of time. And who makes that decision? The all-knowing politician is going to tell you, well, what's their incentive to, to teach? Um, they're going to want to teach you certain things based on probably what they want you to learn or what their donors want you to learn. That's just how it works. Yeah. I mean, I'm no different. I'm trying to propagandize people to liberty. You know, yeah. propaganda is neutral. It depends on who uses it and for what reason. And I want to. I want people to be able to think for themselves. So, I would say that's a, a pretty ethical and moral uh, use of propaganda. But that's all. Everything is is we're all just trying to propagate one another. Uh, but some some people do have nefarious purposes, and they have every intention of using every bit of rhetoric and, you know, language manipulation and uh, skewing already skewed scientific research to fit their narrative. Yeah, the term propaganda implies that it's being imposed by a third party. And if it, your idea goes, which I really like, where you get to choose then it's you're choosing the propaganda, at which point it's not really propaganda. It's your choice to learn certain information. And if you make a mistake, which you might, that's on you rather than just going with the imposition that's been given to you. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that's interesting though, going back to the being able to, you know, fail and make mistakes and everything. We've kind of shifted away from that as a culture because that is how we grow. So if, you just take that away. There's there's no incentive to be better, uh, because this is the biggest lie my generation was ever told. You're perfect just the way you are. No, you're not. <laughs> None of you are perfect just the way you you are. You might be good people, yeah, I I agree. And there's good things about a vast majority of everyone, but you're not perfect. You know, we all have room for improvement. We all could. Uh, maybe eat a little bit less, exercise a little bit more, uh, watch a little less TV, spend a little more time with our family. There's always room for improvement. And uh, whoever has decided to take that out of our society, uh, in my opinion, knows exactly what they were doing by doing that. Yeah, the implication, if you are fully perfect, is that if something then goes wrong, then it couldn't be your fault. It must be society. And it takes all the individual accountability off the table, which is a very dangerous thing. Because then if you're not individually accountable, then someone else is accountable. Uh, then you can blame other people, number one. But then you, you're not going to want to grow. And you can just say, well, then this organization is going to take care of everything 
for me. It's like not a big leap to go there, which then leads to a stronger state. Imagine that. <laughs> how how uh, easy that was, because, yeah, that's a pretty quick leap. You know, it's like, well, I've got to have somebody correct this. You know, I'm a victim. It's me. You know, I'll one thing I kind of wanted to bring up is a, a minority that really does get forgotten about. And that's left-handed people because I'm <laughs> left-handed. And let me tell you, being left-handed in a right-handed world is terrible. Um, especially, I mean, the Catholic church used to murder us at high numbers. So, uh, because it was all a superstition of, uh, you know, left hand, you know, the left hand path, devilish, your, uh, Satan's minions, all of that. Thank God it's not the 1400s anymore, but you know, it, it's just kind of funny. There are, and this is, this isn't to diminish any, um, actual, um, oppression of people. However, there are very specific movements that have been hijacked and manipulated with a nefarious purpose. Um, and this isn't based on race. This is based across pretty much every demographic, anywhere you can split, split the fruit. One of these movements have been hijacked to implement this victim mentality and you need a savior. Personally, I believe family's the savior, not, uh, not an institution because then I owe them something. Right. And it, it takes away the, the incentive to grow also which from from for me as a metaphysical um like from that lens that's not a good thing spiritually either because i think we're here to grow that's a big part of the reason like we exist in a body uh, that's where my le research leads me so the family unit is a way to have individual accountability and support not that there shouldn't be other support systems in society if people voluntarily want to be charitable which i'm totally for as long as it's voluntary i think that's a great thing um, but there's something about being able to learn within that mini community of the family and then the broader community outside of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's, well, I mean, sometimes the family need help, needs help and we should account for that. However, my, my favorite thing to point to, uh, usually is, you know, if we get rid of the welfare state, well then who's going to help the poor and everything, uh, especially with libertarian libertarians just hate the poor people. Uh, no, that's, that's not the case. Uh, and you can tell that people take care of each other because just look at any community and how they react after a natural disaster. Everyone comes together. Surrounding communities come out to help. Uh, people donate money from all over the world. Nobody's forced to do any of that to help those people, but they do it even under these uh, circumstances where we don't have more freedom, they still do it. Right. So, and, and even the proponents of the welfare state are typically in favor of paying taxes for other people to pay taxes and also that they want to pay taxes because they think they're helping society. So right there, that's proof that people are willing to give away some of their income. They're already doing it. And that's a lot of people in society right there that are yeah. willing to provide, even if there weren't a government doing it, forcing them to pay taxes. Yeah, that, that's always been my argument. Let's uh, let's turn all government programs into a GoFundMe campaign. They propose to us, the people who uh, are what they need, and we let people make the choice. Any popular idea is actually going to get funded. Any terrible idea won't get any money. 
Exactly. Because right now taxation is basically forced charity. They make it seem like it's fully voluntary, like it's not coercion or extortion, but essentially is. And then the group of people within the state get to determine where those dollars are allocated. So they are essentially getting to determine where the charity goes. Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't someone have an as an individual say, I want to support this cause? That's what we do in a free market, whether it's charity or just an actual service or good that we want to buy. Our dollars basically tell us what we find to be moral and worthwhile. Whereas right now the government's determining that for us and forcing us to pay, even if we don't find the things they're funding to be moral. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, I, I tried to explain this to some people. It's the government is supposed to be a service provider. Well, it seems pretty simple. We pay them, they provide a service. If we don't like their service, we can end our contract with them and go with somebody else. However, there is nobody else. And so based on that, they are still a service provider. They are the only service provider for these services, and they have no incentive to give it to you, period. Because if you don't, they'll come and throw you in a cage. And if you fight them on that, they'll just kill you. So yeah, great service. So glad I didn't sign up for this and I have no choice. <laughs> well, it's a really good business model. If you're that kind of service provider, yeah. you get paid no matter what. Whereas typically a service provider, you've got to do a good job. And this is, it's really the underlying argument uh, against statism. I mean, another one that I like that we've sort of touched on um, is the idea that like the reason we have the state is because people are not to be trusted on their own. So the way we do that is we take human beings who we don't trust and we put them in a position of power over the rest of us. And we, we say that's okay because we're going to vote them in using an electoral process. But it's like all these people you don't trust are going to then somehow be trustworthy enough to elect the right person in an election system that we're going to trust. Like it all falls apart yeah. when you actually break it down. Yeah. It's you, you push back on it and it's, it's a house of cards, you know, it's, I, it's not needed, in my opinion. I, I have enough faith in people I don't even know to be able to run their own lives better than I can, uh, better than any politician can, any system. And I, I just see the destruction of what's come. And I, I want to stop the destruction. You know, I want to yeah. stop hurting people and um, give people more power over their own lives. I, I believe in people. Yeah. How dare I? <laughs> I know, right. Oh, you're radical. That's an, you're an extremist. Yeah. Well, you, and I think also what you're saying is you believe in people more than you believe in people to just be in power over one, yeah. over everyone oh, else, yeah. even pe people to be independent. Oh. Um, one other point I wanted to add to this, because I've come across a counter argument that I just didn't expect, which is going against the, the idea of private property. Like that is a ra radical and selfish idea that people yeah. should own anything. I was surprised by that. So I've like had to think, okay, is private pro like, is, is that such a problematic thing? What's the alternative to private property? What's the alternative to ownership? Well, then other people own it. You, you Someone has to own it. So the idea that you can't rightfully own something to me, that is like a really has so much sinister potential and it gets spun around as selfish. And I see this in the spiritual world because like my first two books were much more metaphysical. Yeah. And my audience was metaphysical. People either who are like making that transition from atheists to looking at other things or people who are already metaphysical and spiritual. And then I entered the political world. So you could imagine I lost a lot of people talking about liberty. Um, yeah. And 
some of the people that I lost are those who take this, I think, a distortion of the spiritual metaphysics, which is that, oh, we're all interconnected. Therefore, it's selfish to say that you own anything. Mm. That mm -hmm. it, That is a, a distortion because we are, are interconnected at some level of reality, but there is the physical level where there's me and you. Like We can't deny that. And therefore, there has to be divisions, not in a selfish way. Yeah, You can't have it any other way. Otherwise, someone can just come into your home. They can just take stuff. It's, it's a total free-for-all if you don't have borders to some degree. And then people can voluntarily interact from those boundaries of property. Yeah. Yeah. Pri private property is uh, the, the antithesis of actual chaos. So, I mean... As as a anarcho capitalist, right right leaning capitalist, I guess if you have to categorize it that way, then um, since I don't want to pay for somebody else, or I, I'm not going to just work because because it's the right thing to do. That's not how people work. People work on incentives. Yeah. Um, and I also don't want to work for a monopoly of incentive either. Uh, the, the incentive to not die. <laughs> no. um, I think that's a really good point that there's been a rise in uh, new age movements, which I think pushes that idea of we're all one, we can't own anything. And we're all just these spiritual beings having uh, a physical experience. And I, okay, you're spinning this because that's okay. I'm not even going to argue whether it's right or wrong but you're implementing it wrong. Yes, I'm with you on that. It's it's the misapplication. And it's like, I just did not expect this because to me, it just seems like common sense that you can't have collective ownership without voluntary consent. I mean, if you say, yeah. look, we're all going to share this, that's different. But like compulsory collective ownership is disaster. <laughs> I don't know how yeah. you do that because then anyone can take whatever they want. Can someone could say, well, no, you don't need that piece of bread. You don't need that loaf of bread because I said so. How, how could they know what you this need? This person to, needs it more. This person needs it more because like who, who makes that determination? Someone always has to make the determination. And this, this uh, statist idea is always that there is a group that knows what's better. And the new age spiritual misapplication is uh, very concerning to me. I don't know what the right answer to it is, but it's like the, the lack of acknowledgement of the individual. It's, it's, it's a detachment from reality. Because I understand what they're saying. Because to me, the science points this way, that there is a lack of an individual at some other level. Like in the near-death experience, people say this over and over again. Cultures all over the world, throughout history, children, they talk about, like, we're all one thing. This is when their brain's off. And they come back, they see it. People in meditation with psychedelics. There's something going on to, that's oh, true. Yeah. But that's not the level at which we're interacting on a daily basis. You can't deny the physical that I am an individual body. You're an individual body. Like... We can't deny that part of it. And so it's like an escapism that is embedded in the psychology in a very dangerous way because they haven't thought through the implications of an extreme collectivism, a lack of, of individual ownership. Uh, my, my personal opinion is it tends to lead to like a uh, Jonestown massacre, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, collectivism always ends up in death for some reason. Um, that's more than enough for me to stay away. Right. Um, that that's not the path to go. Uh, it doesn't, it, it doesn't scale. Um, I actually had a conversation with, with a buddy of mine, Justin O'Donnell 
recently, and we were discussing that communism actually does work in the family structure. Hmm. That's the only place it does in the home. That sort of structure actually works anywhere outside of that, outside of your front door. It's never going to scale up. It won't scale with neighbors. It won't scale up to anything beyond that. That's the only way that it can possibly work. Um, otherwise it has to be private property uh, and individual rights because the collective is a collective of individuals. So to take yes. care of the whole, you have to take care of the individual. Yes. And that's what's missed. This this notion of for the greater good and for the benefit of society creates this blob that doesn't exist. It's not independent of the individuals that comprise it. So like many people have said that extreme collectivism, whether it's communism, socialism, or fascism, it leads to horrible things. That's what collectivism leads to. It's far left, far right, however you want to call it. It's yeah. where the individual does not matter. And some would even say that is like the the ultimate disease that we're trying to fight here is collectivism on all sides. Oh, yeah. And uh, I do get concerned when when spirituality, like there are a lot of really good things in those communities, feed into that in unintended ways. Yeah, it it's interesting too because that's not just delegated to any one belief. Uh, there there a lot of collectivism uh, across all sorts of be beliefs, and it seems to be growing within some beliefs as well is, uh, seems, seems a little less religious, a little less focused on the individual. Um, one, one point I wanted to make, and we'll, we'll start wrapping up here so I don't keep you too long. Um, what's interesting about the American or the United States as an experiment was that because our founding fathers were men of their God, um, they understood that political power was too much for faulty humans. And so they tried to set up a system to where they knew political power was bad and that it was going to be abused and misused and used to do terrible things to people. And then that's why they included a constitution and bill of rights. I will give you permission to have political power under these rules which is the whole idea behind the Bill of Rights, which gets stepped on every day. But I thought it's just kind of interesting that they knew how terrible things can get. And they knew that we would be in a position that we're in now. And they put it in place for us to be able to save ourselves. Yeah, they were skeptical of power, which we've moved away from. We've somehow come to revere power. It's like the an inversion. Um. And we've, we've gotten stuck in a system that is not fully voluntary. It's pitched to us as, well, you have, there's an implied consent in all of this, but it's not explicit consent, our participation in it. And that's really the problem. Like when you mentioned the family unit and, and communism working there, it's working also within the context of a voluntary communism where everyone in the family is agreeing that we're going to share resources in this way. And if you disagree, then maybe someone gets divorced and you leave. There's still a way out of it. A lot of these other systems, they're, they're compulsory systems where you, you don't have an out. Um, and that that's one of the flaws. If you look back at the early days of, of how the country was formed is that there was a compulsory aspect to it was this minarchist. We're going to create the state. It's going to stay small. We're going to put in checks and balances to take care of that, except who's checking the checkers. There's uh, at some point, there's no one to check the system itself. And it becomes like Murray Rothbard. He called 
all the, the countries of the world in international anarchy because no one's actually checking them. And if you did have someone to check them, you'd have a one world government who's checking that. So yeah. um, that's the one flaw that like the ANCAPs will make to the, the way the country was set up. But within the context of statism, it's like the best you could imagine, except that it's just not a fully voluntary. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing I think uh, the liberty movement is fighting for is consent. I, you know, yeah. we can even keep the system we have now, but let me opt in and opt out of what I don't want. Right. Yeah. And some you know? people have talked about that. Like even in an ANCAP society, you could have maybe the government the way we have it now, but you subscribe to the services that you want and that would alter, alter prices. And you probably have certain aspects of government stop because there's no demand for them. But the actual, the, the structure itself, like there is utility in it. It's just the lack of consent and the lack of market forces that, that would alter it in a better way. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine too many people are okay with unfounded proxy wars. Right. You know, that we, it, we didn't it agree to happen. Yeah. And so, actually you're reminding me, Jacob, of uh, one of your questions that we didn't get to of uh, the ANCAP criticism of military. We oh, didn't talk about it quite as yes. much. So we should address that briefly. Briefly. That's an important one. And it is, I would say it is an issue um, because I mean, but it's an issue now with governments. You have governments that have massive weapons and we do see wars, but we also see countries that are next to each other where there's lots of peace. There's long periods of peace between them. So it's not like there's a guarantee that there would be just complete war all the time. But in a voluntary ANCAP society, people would have an ability to fund the things that they think are important. So if they want to fund essentially private military, just like private police, private security, these are all things that could exist. Because right now, the people are funding the government through taxation. So it's just a matter of, of prioritizing where those funds go. And some people might say, I want to have really, I want to be really secure in where I live. And other people who agree with them, they might band together and be part of a community where they have something that resembles a military. I think that's the ANCAP answer. That and volunteering. I mean, we, the, yeah. the military depends upon volunteers now. Why would that change? There's exactly. There's going to be tons of people who want to put in service for their community, which is exactly the reasoning that recruiters use. So I don't know. I, I don't see it changing all that much. Um, I, I think the only difference now is, is just there's such thing as nuclear weapons. Like who controls that? Uh, personally, I want recreational nukes, but that's just me. <laughs> well, it's a challenging topic because it's like, well, we, we say that the governments can have them. They have exclusive rights to these weapons. This gets into very murky air territory because it's like it's a it's so potentially damaging, but it's damaging under statism and dangerous. So yeah. it's sort of like you don't just it's not like the problem goes away um, because we have government that handles these weapons. So, there, yeah, it would be problematic in a voluntarist society, but it's also problematic under statism. Yeah, I would just like to point out that uh, the the U.S. government has lost like sixty or seventy nuclear weapons since the forties. Just lost. They don't know where they are. So you know, it's just because uh, somebody appears to be uh, competent in something doesn't mean they actually are, and doesn't mean that they are the right people to be in charge of something. Uh, I agree that there probably should be some sort of something to uh, manage these sort of this technology because it could get out of hand very quickly um, if not taken care of properly. 
but the current people in charge of it, mm -mm. I mean, the guy can't even ride a bike who's in control of some of the codes now. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure he doesn't have the codes. Um, they just pump his <clears throat> ice cream full of uh, just medication to keep him going. But um, I, I still, that wouldn't stop me uh, eliminating government and then all of a sudden there's nukes. It's like, well, the nukes are here and bad people have them. Right. So, and we didn't consent to their ability to unilaterally use them either. Like they're like to your point mm -hmm. of consent, we didn't, I didn't give someone permission explicitly. You didn't, we don't have a contract that says that you can do these things. So it is highly problematic as is. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't consent to any of this actually. <laughs> um, you know, let's, let's have a, uh, a, a constitutional, uh, con constitutional convention and see what exactly we all agree with, because I don't agree with much at least how it is now. So, right. You know. But we're, we're told that we should live with it because that's the way it is. And that's, it's mm -hmm. actually a good thing to live with it. That's the psychology that's been imprinted for so long that we have yeah. this benevolent institution. You don't have to explicitly consent to it because you're, you live there. So therefore you have consented and you don't have rights other than getting to check the box for certain politicians and maybe your person's going to win or not. Whereas in the marketplace, you vote with your dollars effectively, yeah. the things that you want it's all voluntary. You're paying for that thing. Yeah. We are not having that right now. Even well, I mean, even with as uh, restricted as it is, we still to somewhat, somewhat control the market with our dollars. There's only so much of that, that they can control and only so much they can take out of it. And, uh, you know, right now might be a good idea to diversify away from, uh, anything digital. Um, even ca cold hard cash is probably better to hold at this point. <laughs> yeah, I know there's lots of opinions on like what what's valuable. If if fiat is is in danger and crypto is down, um, it's it's like rethinking the basics of economics because yeah. as I've thought about it, some people say, well, money we we shouldn't have at all. There needs to be some unit of barter, some unit yeah. of exchange. I don't think you could ever have a society without that. Um, but the question is, what should that unit be? That's fungible. That 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 people would find uh, universally valuable to exchange. Um, I don't know. This is where entrepreneurs come in to come yeah. up with creative solutions. Exactly. And I mean, you can never fall back on, or you can always fall back on the staples, food, water, medicine, you know, in a worst case scenario, that will be very highly sought after that you could trade and barter with. You know, I'm really partial to uh, gold and silver. I like that. I also prefer the only crypto that matters, which is Monero, because it is privacy based, unlike Bitcoin. Hmm. Uh, you own Bitcoin, and that's like having your checking account, uh, you know, every single transaction available to see t to everybody, which Bitcoin was a good start, but there's no privacy. And uh, privacy is the way of the future uh, as we move into this digital hellscape. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's a, a little bit of everything. Uh, uh, books. I highly recommend books, especially this one right here. Thank you. <laughs> so I think we'll wrap up there, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this, this has been a wonderful time and I want to get you back on to have more discussions like this. Uh, let everyone know where they can find you, what you have coming up. Awesome, Jacob. Well, thank you for having me and thanks for all the work that you do to get this message out. It takes a lot of courage to do that and really appreciate that. 
So in terms of my work, my website is my name, markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. I have a podcast that's on this topic of consciousness. It's an eight-episode series called Where Is My Mind? And we tried to make it mainstream. I worked with a producer who is in the sports industry. So we took clips from the scientists that I interviewed, like near-death experience people, psychic people, um, and tried to bring credibility to that. So it's called Where Is My Mind? on all the major platforms. And I have four books out uh, on Amazon. They're all in hard copy. Kindle and Audible. The first one's called An End to Upside Down Thinking, and that's about the evidence that the brain does not produce consciousness. Second one's called An End to Upside Down Living, which is on thinking about how to approach life if you believe in that kind of metaphysics that the science points to. The third is An End to Upside Down Liberty, which is what we've been talking about. And I have a new one that came out this summer. It's called An End to Upside Down Contact, and it's about UFOs, aliens, and spirits, and why their ongoing interaction with human civilization matters. So it gets into some really out there. It gets into some out there stuff, but I, I was shocked in my research to learn that something is going on. We're not alone, and it impacts this discussion of the state because you start to wonder what is the relation between potentially other intelligences and the control structures. And I think there's something there. Yeah, uh, I mean, there. I have a hard time believing, uh, just on a mathematical principle, that we would be alone in the universe. Um, there's, there's a lot of things I can believe, but it doesn't seem like with, okay, with the understanding that it's supposed to be as vast that is in space and time, it's all supposed to be as vast as they say it is, then how could we be the only ones, the only intelligent being that doesn't make sense to me. So I'm thoroughly convinced that there is something, um, and if there were anything, we would be lied to about it. Right. So. Yeah, that's one of the things I talk about. There's a history that I was not aware of, of government involvements with this sort of thing and cover-ups. I mean, it's just, it's like the same formula applied to just this area of uh, non-human intelligence. And um, beyond what we can see in this physical universe, the vastness of, you know, the improbability that we would be alone just in the physical universe, if you add the metaphysical component of the stuff that we can't see with our eyes, it's this whole new dimension of possibilities that has been reported on. So it's, fascinating topic. I got so hooked on it that I said, okay, I've got to write another one on this, even though people are going to think I'm nuts, but it's, uh, there's uh, evidence. Probably not on my channel. So okay. you're good. Thanks. <laughs> so one, one last question that I always try to leave everyone with, I always like hearing everyone's answer. Why is Liberty important? I go to the metaphysical principle. I think it's built into the structure of reality that we are here to evolve as human beings. That's why we exist. And if you don't have liberty, you're not evolving on your own terms. Your, your experiences are going to be limited by what a third party tells you to do that you have not fully consented to explicitly. And to me, that's metaphysically very dangerous. It, you, we don't know the ways in which that could harm us to not have liberty. Yeah, well said. And on that note, I would like to remind everyone, thank you so much for watching Rise to Liberty podcast. Make sure hit that like, subscribe, share buttons. We're always under soft censorship, being you know throttled and shadow banned pretty much everywhere. So the best thing you can do is fight back against it and hit the like, share, subscribe. Let just get this out there. Uh, the more people we can have in on this conversation, the better. Uh, make sure and pick up a copy of Mark's book and make sure to go to risetoliberty.com/links. Everything's in the episode description and. Uh, until next time, stay free, my friends.